Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. What happens when you create a new proof pretty much by accident, and it ends up basically leading to a new branch of mathematics? That's next. While you're listening to podcasts, remember to check out the other Quantum Magazine podcast, The Joy of X. Host Stephen Strogatz interviews top-tier scientists and mathematicians. New episodes out now. Also, tell your friends about this podcast and give us a like or follow where you listen. It helps people find the Quantum Magazine podcast. Joseph Silverman remembers when he began connecting the dots that would ultimately lead to a new branch of mathematics. It was April 25, 1992, at a conference at Union College in Schenectady, New York. It happened by accident while he was at a talk by decorated mathematician John Milner. Milner worked in a field called complex dynamics, which Silverman knew little about. Silverman says he noticed something as Milner introduced some basic ideas. So every time he stated a theorem or a lot of the theorems, my thought was, if you just change a couple of the words, there's an analogous sort of problem in arithmetic geometry, in number theory. Silverman, a mathematician at Brown University, asked Milner some follow-up questions over breakfast the next day and then set to work pursuing the analogy. His goal was to create a dictionary that would translate between dynamical systems and number theory. At first glance, the two look like unrelated branches of mathematics. Most of the focus was sort of on the number theory side for a while, at least from my perspective. And like we had a very successful conference, which pulled together a lot of number theorists and algebraic geometers, but not so much dynamicists that first one. Silverman recognized that the two branches of math complement each other in a particular way. While number theory looks for patterns in sequences of numbers, dynamical systems actually produce sequences of numbers, like the sequence that defines a planet's position in space at regular intervals of time. The two merge when mathematicians look for number theoretic patterns hidden in those sequences. In the decades since Silverman attended Milner's talk, mathematicians have dramatically expanded the connections between the two branches of math. They've built the foundations of an entirely new field, arithmetic dynamics. The field's reach continues to grow. In a paper published in Annals of Mathematics last year, three mathematicians extended the analogy to one of the most ambitious and unexpected places yet. In doing so, they resolved part of a decades-old problem in number theory that didn't previously seem to have any clear connection to dynamical systems at all. The new proof quantifies the number of times that a type of curve can intersect special points in a surrounding space. Number theorists previously wondered if there's a cap on just how many intersections there can be. The authors of the proof used arithmetic dynamics to prove there is an upper limit for a particular collection of curves. 
Laura DeMarco is a mathematician at Harvard and co-author of the paper. DeMarco worked on the paper with Holly Krieger of the University of Cambridge and Heshi Yia of Sejiang University. For me, and I think it also comes in Holly's work, is this overlap, is saying, well, over here we want to understand just the number theory and just the solutions to equations. Who cares if there's a dynamical system? But if there is, we can use it as a tool and say, oh, but now we've done all this analysis in this arithmetic dynamics world and invented all these tools to use dynamics. Hey, maybe it's useful. And actually, wow, it is useful. And that was one of the things that happened in that paper was maybe one of the first times to say, oh, these purely dynamical ideas actually pushed us further than we were before on the arithmetic side. The roots of the paper go back to May of 2010. That's when a group of mathematicians, including Silverman, gathered at a small research institute in Barbados. That was the first conference, I remember, that really had a lot of people from both sides of things. They spent sunny days discussing math just a few dozen feet from the beach. The conference area is outdoors under this metal sheet roof, no walls, rickety chairs and benches. And one evening when it was raining, you couldn't even really hear people because of the rain on the metal roof. Silverman says the conference was a pivotal moment in the development of arithmetic dynamics. It was fantastic. I gave a series of lectures, two hours in the morning of lectures for me. Then we went into town and had lunch. Then we spent the afternoon at the beach discussing mathematics. Dinner, two hours of talks after dinner. It was one of the most fun conferences I've ever been to. But it also really got the sort of number theory side people talking to the people with really serious expertise in complex dynamics. That included Silverman, whose expertise is in number theory, and DeMarco and Krieger, who specialize in dynamical systems. Their goal was to expand the types of problems that could be addressed by combining the two perspectives. Their starting point was one of the central objects in number theory, elliptic curves. Just like circles and lines, elliptic curves are both numbers and shapes. They are pairs of numbers, x and y, that serve as solutions to an algebraic equation like y squared equals x cubed minus 2x. The graph of those solutions creates a geometric shape that looks vaguely like a vertical line extruding a bubble. Mathematicians have long been interested in quantifying and classifying various properties of these curves. The most prominent result so far is the famed 1994 proof of Fermat's Last Theorem by Andrew Wiles. It's a question about which equations have solutions that are whole numbers. The proof relied heavily on the study of elliptic curves. In general, mathematicians focus on elliptic curves because they occupy the sweet spot of inquiry. They're not easy enough to be trivial and not so hard that they're impossible to study. Matt Baker is a mathematician at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He says there are plenty of things in math that are interesting, but too simple to be useful. He says there's a balance between simplicity and complexity. Circles are really nice. They're really important, but I mean, you know, they're just circles. <laughs> so we kind of understand circles pretty well. So there's not that much modern math being based on properties of circles. But elliptic curves are still mysterious enough that they're generating new math all the time. 
Mathematicians are particularly interested in points on elliptic curves that act like a home base for a special way of moving around on the curves. On an elliptic curve, you can add points to each other using standard addition. But this approach isn't very useful. The sum is unlikely to be another point on the curve. But elliptic curves come packaged with a special internal structure that creates a different type of arithmetic. This structure is called a group. The results of adding points together using its self-contained arithmetic rules is quite different. If you add two points on an elliptic curve according to the group structure, the sum is always a third point on the curve. And if you continue this process by adding a point to itself over and over, the result is an infinite sequence of points that all lie along the elliptic curve. Here's Holly Krieger. I can say, okay, if I have this collection of points on an elliptic curve and I know how to add two of them together, then here's a very basic dynamical system. You hand me a point and I hand you back the sum of that point with itself. So this is pretty stupid if you do it like just for integers instead, right? Like if I start with two and I just add two to itself a bunch of times, I kind of know what happens. <laughs> but it's a much more interesting question in a more complicated geometric object like an elliptic curve. Different starting points will result in different sequences. The home base points are starting points with a very unique property. If you repeatedly add one of these points to itself, it doesn't generate an infinite sequence of new points. Instead, it creates a loop that comes back to the point you started with. These special starting values that create loops are called torsion points. Number theorists are interested in them. Torsion points also correspond to a specific type of point on dynamical systems. It was this correspondence that really set arithmetic dynamics in motion. Here's Krieger again. Many things you might want to ask about the arithmetic of elliptic curves can be translated into the setting of the arithmetic of dynamical systems. So that's truly the basis of why this field has become a field. There's this deeper connection to understanding the arithmetic of elliptic curves. Dynamical systems are often used to describe real-world phenomena that move forward in time according to a repeated rule. Think of a billiard ball ricocheting in accordance with Newton's laws. You begin with a value, plug it into a function, and get an output that becomes your new input. Some of the most interesting dynamical systems are driven by functions, like the value of a function equals x squared minus 1. These are associated with intricate fractal pictures known as Julia sets. Remember that complex numbers are numbers with a real part and an imaginary part. If you use complex numbers and apply the function over and over, this feeds each output back into the function as the next input. And as a result, you generate a sequence of points in the complex plane. This is just one example of what's called a quadratic polynomial, in which the variable is raised to the second power. Quadratic polynomials are the foundation of research in dynamical systems, just as elliptic curves are the focus of a lot of basic inquiry in number theory. Here's mathematician Matt Baker. There's something fundamentally difficult about these kind of problems. So we have to take what we can get. I mean, so you could just give up and say, well, I guess math is too hard, so we're not going to study this anymore. But in fact, there are many special cases we can solve. So we're always trying to push the envelope there. And 
quadratic polynomials in complex dynamics play a similar role as like elliptic curves in number theory. They're the ground that we always seem to return to, to try to actually prove something, but there's still these like embarrassingly simple questions that we can't solve. Dynamical systems generate sequences of numbers as they evolve. Take, for example, that quadratic function with the value of a function equaling x squared minus 1. If you start with a value x equals 2, you generate the infinite sequence 2, 3, 8, 63, and so on. But not all starting values trigger a series that grows larger forever. If you begin with x equals 0, that same function generates a very different type of sequence. 0, negative 1, 0, negative 1, 0, and so on. Instead of an infinite string of distinct numbers, you end up in a small closed loop. In the world of dynamical systems, starting points whose sequences eventually repeat are called finite orbit points. They are a direct analog of torsion points on elliptic curves. In both cases, you start with a value, apply the rules of the system or curve, and end up in a cycle. This is the analogy that the three mathematicians, including Laura DeMarco, use in their new proof. This simple observation, just that torsion points on the elliptic curve are the same as finite orbit points for a certain dynamical system, is what we use in our paper over and over and over again. It's exactly the translation required to study a problem about elliptic curves, it's a problem about genus two curves, it's a problem about geometry and arithmetic and you know this very general problem that we study in that paper. We're studying it from a dynamical point of view because we're thinking of the group, the elliptic curve, as this dynamical system and looking at properties of height functions and equidistribution of those zeros and all those words go into this paper and make a connection. Both Krieger and Yia received their doctorates from the University of Illinois, Chicago in 2013 under DeMarco's supervision. The trio reconvened in August of 2017 at the American Institute of Mathematics in San Jose, California, which hosts intensive short-term research programs. Yia says they stayed in a room for days, working through some questions. They began to envision a way to extend the crucial analogy between torsion points of elliptic curves and finite orbit points of dynamical systems. They knew they could transform a seemingly unrelated problem into one where the analogy was directly applicable. That problem arises out of something called the Manin-Mumford conjecture. That conjecture is about curves that are more complicated than elliptic curves. You can find an example at the Quanta Magazine website. Each of these curves comes with an associated larger geometric object called a Jacobian. The object mimics certain properties of the curve and is often easier for mathematicians to study than the curve itself. A curve sits inside its Jacobian the way a piece sits inside a jigsaw puzzle. Unlike elliptic curves, these more complicated curves don't have a group structure that enables adding points on a curve to get other points on the curve, but the associated Jacobians do. The Jacobians also have torsion points, just like elliptic curves, which circle back on themselves under repeated internal addition. 
The Monning-Mumford conjecture has to do with how many times one of these complicated curves nestled inside its Jacobian intersects the torsion points of the Jacobian. It predicts that these intersections only occur finitely many times. The conjecture reflects the interrelationship between the algebraic nature of a curve and its life as a geometric object. Torsion points are crowded in every region of the Jacobian. If you zoom in on any tiny part of it, you'll find them. But the Manin Mumford conjecture predicts that, surprisingly, the nestled curve still manages to miss all but a finite number of them. In 1983, Michel Reynaud proved the conjecture true. Since then, mathematicians have been trying to upgrade his result. Instead of just knowing that the number of intersections is finite, they'd like to know it's below some specific value. Here's Holly Krieger again. Now that you know <laughs> that two of them can only have finitely many in common, every mathematician you would meet would then say like, well, how many, right? Like, can they have a hundred in common? Can they have 1000 in common? Like, is there a bound on how many common ones there can be? The effort to count the intersection points was impeded by the lack of a clear framework in which to think about the complex numbers that define those points. Arithmetic dynamics ended up providing one. In their 2020 paper, DeMarco, Krieger, and Yia established that there's an upper bound on the intersection number for a family of curves. Krieger says that means if you'd had a certain number of points, you could tell which elliptic curve it came from. So the reason why it's interesting is that it doesn't care which two elliptic curves you started with. It's good for any pair of elliptic curves. A newer paper by another mathematician, Lars Kuhne of the University of Copenhagen, presents a proof establishing an upper bound for all curves. Reynaud's previous result proved simply that the number of intersections is finite, but it left room for that finite number to be as large as you could possibly want. The trio's new proof establishes what's called a uniform bound, a cap on how big that finite number of intersections can be. DeMarco, Krieger, and Yea didn't identify that cap exactly, but they proved it exists. They also identified a long series of steps that future work could take to calculate the number. Their proof relies on a unique property of the Jacobians associated with this special family of curves. They can be split apart into two elliptic curves. The elliptic curves that make up the Jacobians take their solutions from the complex numbers. This gives their graphs a bulkier appearance than the graphs of elliptic curves, whose solutions come from the real numbers. Instead of a wiggly line, they look like the surface of a donut. The specific family of curves that DeMarco, Krieger, and Yia studied has Jacobians that look like two-hold donuts, or maybe even an eye mask. Each side breaks apart nicely into two regular donuts, each of which is the graph of one of the two constituent elliptic curves. The new work focuses on the torsion points of those elliptic curves. The three mathematicians knew they were looking for the number of intersection points between complicated curves and the torsion points of their Jacobians, and they knew it could be reframed in terms of the number of times that torsion points from one of those elliptic curves overlap torsion points from the other. So to put a bound on the Manin-Mumford conjecture, all the authors had to do was count the number of intersections between those torsion points. 
They knew this couldn't be accomplished directly. The two elliptic curves and their torsion points couldn't be immediately compared because they don't necessarily overlap. The torsion points are sprinkled on the surface of the elliptic curves, but the two curves might have very different shapes. It's like comparing points on the surface of a sphere to points on the surface of a cube. The points can have similar relative positions without actually overlapping. Here's Krieger again. If you take two different elliptic curves, you can't really compare the points on those elliptic curves because they're in different places because they're living on different geometric objects. I can't say like how many points in common are there. The answer is probably like none. But while torsion points don't actually necessarily overlap, it's possible to think of pairs of them as being in the same relative position on each donut. And pairs of torsion points that occupy the same relative position on their respective donuts can be thought of as intersecting. In order to determine precisely where these intersections take place, the authors had to lift the torsion points off their respective curves and transpose them over each other, almost the way you'd fit a star chart to the night sky. Mathematicians knew about these star charts, but they didn't have a good perspective that allowed them to count the overlapping points. DeMarco, Krieger, and Yia managed it using arithmetic dynamics. They translated the two elliptic curves into two different dynamical systems. The two dynamical systems generated points on the same actual space, the complex plane. Here's how Laura DeMarco explains it. To talk about the geometry turned out to be relevant to put them on the same space. So they're two separate spaces. It's easier to think of one space with two separate dynamical systems versus two separate spaces with the same dynamical system, which is in fact what it is. It's multiplication by two on this space, multiplication by two on this space, but you just translate it into, oh, it's actually just one space and two or a family of dynamical systems. That's the conceptual transition from a family of elliptic curves with all the same dynamical system, multiplication by two or whichever endomorphism you choose versus one space, which is the complex plane and a family of systems. The finite orbit points of the two dynamical systems corresponded to the torsion points of the underlying elliptic curves. Now, to put a bound on the Manin-Mumford conjecture, the mathematicians just needed to count the number of times these finite orbit points overlapped. They used techniques from dynamical systems to solve the problem. In order to count the number of overlaps, DeMarco, Krieger, and Yia turned to a tool which measures how much the value of an initial point grows as it's repeatedly added to itself. The torsion points on elliptic curves have no growth or long-term change since they circle back to themselves. Mathematicians measure this growth, or lack of it, using a height function. It equals zero when applied to the torsion points of elliptic curves. Similarly, it equals zero when applied to the finite orbit points of dynamical systems. Height functions are an essential tool in arithmetic dynamics because they can be used on either side of the divide between the two branches. The authors studied how often points of zero height coincide for the dynamical systems representing the elliptic curves. They showed that these points are sufficiently scattered around the complex plane so that they're unlikely to coincide, so unlikely in fact, that they can't do it more than a specific number of times. 
That number is difficult to compute, and it's probably much larger than the actual number of coinciding points. But the authors proved that this hard ceiling does exist. They then translated the problem back into the language of number theory to determine a maximum number of shared torsion points on two elliptic curves. That's the key to their original question and a provocative demonstration of the power of arithmetic dynamics. Patrick Ingram researches number theory at York University in Toronto. From the point of view of the number theory community, when they see these things about quadratic polynomials or something like this intersection of dynamics and number theory, the people who are in sort of the classical traditional areas of number theory sort of look at that and say, oh, that's interesting. But here with this money Mumford result, they're able to say something or answer a specific question that already existed just within number theory. And then nobody thought it had anything to do with dynamical systems. By using that set of tools, they're able to say something all of a sudden about this result. That got a lot of attention. Shortly after DeMarco, Krieger, and Yia first posted their proof of a uniform bound for the Manin-Mumford conjecture, they released a second related paper. The follow-up work is about a question in dynamical systems instead of number theory, but it uses similar methods. In that sense, the pair of papers is a quintessential product of the analogy Silverman noticed almost 30 years earlier. Here's Laura DeMarco. In substance, it's the same argument applied to two different families of examples. One is really just of interest to the complex dynamics world, and one is really just of interest to the complex geometry and arithmetic world. And so it was sort of illustrating that some collection of techniques apply in two different settings. Joseph Silverman sees the two papers as suggestive more than conclusive, hinting at an even wider influence for the new discipline. He says the specific theorems are special cases of what the big conjecture should be, but he says they're still really beautiful theorems. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Kelsey Houston Edwards' full article, Mathematicians Set Numbers in Motion to Unlock Their Secrets, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Quantum Magazine is an editorially independent online publication launched by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. 